My name is Cindy, and I'm an alcoholic. Because of the grace of God, some simple actions in this program on both sides of sponsorship. I've been sober since December the 17th, 1985, and for that I'm extremely grateful. i, I got to take my shoes off or I don't last up here. But uh, <laughs> The truth is that's the biggest deal in my life today. And, uh, and because that's the biggest deal in my life today, I get to have a life. You know, um, and that's probably the most important thing I'm going to say. You know, is that what I have learned is that as long as I put God and AA first, everything else works out. And I get to have some semblance of peace and happiness while it works out. Um, my hope is always that I spend a lot more time talking about sobriety because I've been sober a long time. And the truth is I have more sober experience than drinking experience. And the rubber meets the road with how do we live with this thing. You know, how do we live sober with this thing? Because all of us know how to drink unsuccessfully. That's why we're here. And uh, where, where most of us, it's like how do we deal with the, the laughter, the boredom. Boredom's the hardest part. Um, you know, the pain, the losses. How do we do all of that? and stay sober, but not just sober, because the book makes it clear that sober is not enough. How do, we, how do we do that and be reasonably happy, peaceful, and content? Because um, some of us, we don't, we don't leave AA drinking. Some of us leave AA blowing our brains apart. And, you know, there, there's, there's other things um, that happen to us if we don't learn how to be reasonably happy and peaceful here. Um, at least that's been my experience and what I have, what I have watched. And um, I'll qualify. <clears throat> I've been drinking since I was this big. I drank for exactly the reason it talks about in the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous. I drank because of the effect produced by alcohol. I did not drink because it made me feel sexy. It didn't make me feel tall. It didn't make me feel any of those things that I hear people say. I drank because I felt like I was bleeding from the inside out. And I felt like I had the worst life that anybody had ever, ever, ever had. And I felt like it just, that there was nothing that was ever going to be good in it. And when I drank, it didn't matter as much. When I drank, I didn't hurt as much. It, it felt like it, it stopped the bleeding. And, uh, and, and that really, that, that was my motive to, to drink. I just didn't want to hurt. I was tired of hurting. Now, I will share very little about how I grew up. And one of the things that's been really neat in this last five or ten years of sobriety, for a long time all I could remember about the way I grew up was how horrible everything was and all of the bad things and all the things that had cut my heart. Today, I am remembering so many positive things because it's never all of one or the other, ever. It's never all great and it's never all bad. And I got some real, I got a work ethic that came out of that childhood that has saved my behind. You know, the way that I grew up prepared me for the adulthood that I was going to have that wasn't of my own making but that has had a lot of obstacles in it. Um, so I'm really today grateful for the way I grew up. Now, the way I grew up, I contributed a lot to because of my alcoholism. A couple bad things happened, and I reacted in a very alcoholic way. People tried to help me, and, uh, and, and I didn't want help because I wanted you to fix it. And so I drank, and drinking was my solution. 
By the time I was 17 years old, I've been in 25 institutions. That includes foster homes. Uh, I was adopted. I was back in orphanages. Uh, I was in state mental hospitals in the 70s, which, uh, you know, is nothing like Holiday Inn psych units that, uh, that, 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 that we often get to go to. They were pretty nasty. And I, li and, I, and I hitchhiked from one end of this country to the other. I'd lived on the streets. I didn't go to high school. I went a little tiny bit to many for uh, parts of a freshman year when you go to an institution and you're young, they make you attend classes and things like that. But I, I didn't go to high school. I didn't have a hope, a dream. I didn't have anything I was going to be or do. My life was done. And drinking was the only thing that made it any better. And drinking had now become the problem and I couldn't see it. I couldn't see that it just made it worse. Um, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous in October of 1980. Um, I had hitchhiked back from Washington, D.C., where, where I was staying. Cincinnati was my home base. Um, I, one of the foster homes I've been in, my foster brother and sister had muscular dystrophy. They were the only people I cared about. And the only reason I cared about them is I didn't think anybody had ever had it worse than me until I met them. And see, they couldn't feed themselves. They couldn't put themselves to bed. They couldn't, they couldn't do the things, and so, so life was less fair to them than it had been to me, and somehow that made for, a real, for, for, for probably the only bond I had during my adolescence. And uh, my foster brother was having surgery. They didn't expect him to make it. I hitchhiked back from D.C. I was there for that surgery, and I did exactly what I would have done if he hadn't survived. He did survive. If he hadn't survived, I would have drank, and I would have called it grief. He survived, I drank, and I called it celebration. You know, but no matter what, what I do is I drink. And, uh, and I'm a blackout drinker, and if you don't know what that means, I'll tell you what it means for me. What it means for me is that I can wake up in the middle of a conversation and have to try to figure out where it's at. You know, it means I can wake up in very compromised positions and not know if I volunteered or not. It means that it's a very scary, especially as a woman, to be a blackout drinker. I also was afraid a lot. And because I was afraid, I carried a gun. And uh, I, I, it's hard for anybody that knows me now to think that I ever didn't have a voice, but I didn't have much of a voice. I didn't know how to talk. And so, uh, and so what I found was that if I brought that gun out, people listened better. You know, you, you ever notice that? <laughs> and so what I'm going to relate to you, I have no recollection of, but apparently uh, a friend of mine decided to try to get away from me. I can't imagine why you try to get away from me when I'm drunk. But, uh, and she went into a retail store to get away from me, and uh, I went into that retail store with a gun to try to talk about it. And uh, that's a very bad idea. And then when the police came, I decided to try to converse with them. Now, this is all related to me. I don't remember any of it. What I remember is I woke up at University Hospital in Cincinnati, hanging on a wall, strapped down from head to toe, black and blue from my chin to my knees. They hang, they, they, they hang you on a wall because you flip the stretcher on your face too many times, and they do it to protect you from yourself. I woke up, and I'm always a victim because, see, people are always doing bad things to me. That's how I feel when I'm drinking. It's always your fault. It's only if somebody else could just do something different. If somebody would care more, if somebody would love me enough, you know, if you'd stop trying to hurt me, you know, if I'd only have the right parents, if I'd only have the right this or the right that, then it would all be okay if I had the right, if I had the right shrink that understood, you know, if I had the right anything. And, uh, and so I'm always a victim. So I woke up, and I'm like, who did this to me? And a nurse laughed at me. She said, you did. And she said I was an alcoholic. And that was really disappointing news. And, um, <laughs> and then, she said, uh, then she said, by the way, the county sheriff's on his way, and uh, you're not going to juvenile. I was barely 17 years old. Uh, you're going to county jail. I burnt the system out. See, every time anybody tried to help me, I, I had that alcoholic thing 
where it's not my way. You're not helping the way I think I need to be helped. I got a drink. I drink. I'd make it worse. You know, that was my way. And, uh, and nobody, nobody, not only did I feel helpless and hopeless about me, so did the system. So did society. They were sick of me. You know, I, they had tried everything with me. I was a pretty smart kid, so when you're smart, people want to, uh, people see a little hope. Well, they stopped seeing any hope in me. So I was going to county jail. I was being charged as an adult and uh, with seven felonies. Because uh, when you carry a gun into a retail establishment and you fight with the police and uh, you do things like break a cop's nose, those things are all really bad. And, uh, <laughs> and even if you don't remember it, you're still responsible for it. And even if you never meant to rob anybody, if you just, you see what I mean, these intentions and actions think, golly, did it take me a long time to understand that, you know what I mean? But if people get scared because you got a gun, well, um, a lot of bad things happen. So um, I went to jail, and the good thing is I was so malnourished from living on the streets, which is always hard for anybody to comprehend now, but, um, but I really was. I was so malnourished, and I went into severe withdrawal in jail, and that was the good news. The good news is that because I did that, I ended up getting some help, and somehow I wound up in a treatment center, and, uh, and you know, nothing magical happened in that treatment center. I'm going to try to give you highlights of these things so we can get to now, but um, I was in Podunk, uh, Ohio uh, with a bunch of old farmers and uh, they were old and they were men and uh, I didn't relate to none of them there was a guy that got a DUI on a tractor and uh, you know I'm not identifying uh, the part I later came to identify with is the reason he got a DUI on a tractor is because he does what I do he get he drinks and gets dumb See, I drink and I get dumb. See, he forgot where he was and he put the plow down in the highway. You know, and that's what I do. You know what I'm saying? I just drink and get dumb. And um, so anyway, um, I came in like this because I, I was a street urchin and I had about a five-word vocabulary. And uh, you can just use your imagination. Most of those farmers never heard those words before. And, uh, and uh, I use those words like a weapon. You see, I, I had a foul mouth and I was crass because uh, I, I couldn't afford for you to get near me because I was, knew I was so rejectable. You know, I knew that I was so, at my core, all I had was shame. All I knew was that I was broken and that there was no hope for me and there was no life for me. And, um, and all I wanted was to be loved. But when you reached out to love me, all I did was was push you away with my vocabulary and my street warriorness and how bad I am to the bone and what I might do to you. And um, those farmers weren't intimidated. They, um, they just kept being nice from a distance, but they were nice. And, uh, and um, after a couple weeks, you know, they, we talked and they said, uh, Cindy, why don't you work these steps? Your life could be different. And I said, with all of my being, I said, you don't understand. See, I'm broken. Those steps, I wish that your little steps would work for me. I wish with all my heart that that would fix me and I could have your problem. See, on all those institutions I was in, I got labels. I got titles. They're the only titles I've ever really had, you know. And, uh, it, and I bought into it. And I owned it. And that became my identity. And I was so afraid to try your steps because it was the last thing. And if I tried them and it didn't work, it proved that everything anybody ever said about me was true. And so I danced around and 
dancing around in AA, and I, but I, lo- I came to love you because you guys, you let me sleep on your couches, you bought me cake after meetings, um, and you were nice to me and you said come back, and that had not happened in a long time, and nobody told me how to dress, and nobody told me how to talk, and nobody said I couldn't cuss, and nobody said any of those things to me. They told me that we're a very disorganized organization and there aren't any rules, there are some suggestions. And if anybody had, and anybody had said, you have to do this, and you have to do that, and you have to do this, I would not be here today. See, what I did, though, is I watched you. And you didn't talk the way I talked. And pretty soon what you had was attractive, and I wanted to talk the way that you talked. You know, I want, I, it became attractive to me. Anyway, I went to the AA clubhouse and I hung out. And uh, I hung out because I wanted to be loved. And that's not a good enough reason to be in AA, and it won't work if you're an alcoholic. And so I found, you can find anything you want in these rooms. I mean anything. I found a couple of fellows, and fellows, the reason they tell you not to get involved with new girls is to protect yourself, all right? (laughs) I mean, I'm serious. (laughs) We know exactly what to do with you. And... So uh, I took a couple fellas out drinking, and uh, <laughs> because that's what I do, and and when I drink, I get great ideas, and I decided to to rob a model home in broad daylight for the carpet for my hardwood floors in my apartment. See what I mean? Just dumb, just dumb, and I always get caught. That's probably surprising to you. Um, so now again, I'm arrested, and luckily I was a juvenile charge this time. And uh, that ended up sending me, in Ohio, in Indiana, there were no halfway houses for women. At this time, it was 1981. I'm still 17 years old. There were no halfway houses for women in those two states. So they, they told me I had to become an emancipated adult. They said, you've been living like an adult for a long time. It's time for you to have all the responsibilities. So I became an emancipated adult. They sent me to a halfway house in Lexington, Kentucky for women. It was one of the first ones, a very small. And... Um, I went there and it sort of changed my life. Um, and the biggest piece I got out of that whole experience was that right action leads to right feeling and thinking, and it never happens the other way. See, I'd always in all those institutions thought that you guys got the right therapist or the right shrink that taught you how to act the right way so that you knew how to live this life so that you could do it. And um, I was waiting to feel better so I could act better. See, if I could feel better, I would act better. But what happened there is they, see, I never felt like I belonged in AA. Well, they made me go early. They made me make coffee, you know. And you know what happens when you make coffee? Everybody gets to know your name. And it's stay late and help. You know what happened? They made me get a J-O-V, a job. Now, you know how hard it is to get a job if you don't go to high school and you're 17 years old and an emancipated adult? Well, I set tobacco in fields. That's hard work. But you know what happened? I had my own change. And after the meeting, I didn't manipulate some man to buy my cake and pie. I bought my own. And you know what happened? My shoulders went back. My head went up. You know, and I started to feel different. Not because I felt different to act different, but because I acted different to feel different. They told me, they said, after all this is going smooth, man, I'm starting to like to say stuff. This is all right. They called me the wild child. You know, I had this nickname because I was still crazier. I was crazy. I mean, I was crazy. I was still angry. But it was beginning to shift. And uh, they said, Cindy, we want you to go take classes and get your GED. Here's my response. GED is for losers. GED is for people that didn't go to high school and graduate. I, I don't want a GED. I'd rather be a dropout. And, uh, you know, because that's cooler than a GED. In truth, what it was is I was afraid. 
I was afraid. What if I'm not smart enough? I'm street smart. What if I can't do this GED? So they had me go take this, uh, this test to see where you should be in the classes. And you know what I found out? I didn't have to take any of the classes. I went straight away and took that test, and I scored in the top two percentile of the country. And you know what happened after that? That whole GED that I thought was, what? All of a sudden, my shoulders are back, and I'm like, look at me. I'm Sandra D, baby. I got a GED. You know what I'm saying? You know? <laughs> it's all perception. You know, when I don't have it, it's awful. When I do have it, it's the best thing since sliced bread. And I still have that problem. That's the egomania with inferiority complex, and it's just, um, it's, just it's awful. But, um... I left there, went back to Cincinnati, my AA Wonder Girl, you all seen us. We come in, oh my gosh, we got a 20-word vocabulary, you know, and uh, we're shocked. Because when you come in real bad and dirty and icky, oh, everybody loves to watch a, watch somebody that is, is a low bottom start to get better. You know, it's like when you're, when, when, when you're lower than a mouse turd, it's not too hard to get better. You know what I mean? And it really shows quick. And so, you know, I'm speaking all over and, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm loving life. I'm loving I'm the popular. Oh, my gosh, I've never been popular. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, then, I don't know about you, but I don't just have a committee. I've got a firing squad. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, and, and here's what it sounds like. All right. You know those people don't really like you. They like who they think you are. But if they really knew who you are, well, you stole from handicapped children. Well, you're a piece of junk. My God, you know, it's like you need to drink. You need to blow your brains apart. You suck. And if they find out, they're not going to love you anymore. Blah, blah, blah. That's what my head sounds like. All right, so I got a choice. Drink. Well, at the end of my drinking, my head still went on like that. I'd be stone drunk, and my head would still be chattering away at what a piece of junk I am. And uh, I could try to blow my brains apart, or I could go make these darn amends that my sponsor's been trying to get me to do that I'm scared about. So I went and made amends to the Muscular Dystrophy Association because when I lived in that foster home, I really kept, I've always had a really good heart. People, I hear people say, well, we're liars, cheats, and thieves by nature. I completely disagree with that. Completely. I've been a liar, a cheat, and a thief. That has been my behavior, but I was born pretty close to perfect. I was not born bad. I thought I was, but I was not. You know, and I get, I'm not a liar, cheating thief today. I'm not. I'm human. But my nature is not to cheat you. It is not. And I'm grateful for that. I don't want to own that because I don't want to be that. You know, I want to be an honest woman with character and integrity. And for, I'm not perfect. But for the most part, that's who I am. Lucky me. So anyway, I go to Muscular Dystrophy Association. I make these amends for ripping them off in a fundraiser. Uh, well, I really just tried to invest the money, but um, <laughs> they don't care about that. Um, and they had me do another fundraiser, which proves that we're not the only people that go to the same source expecting different results. Um, a weird fluke of events happened. I'm 20 years old. I'm a couple years sober. Fresh off the streets, they had a bunch of problems in their administration. They had a job opening. They offered me the position of the executive director for the outlying counties for Cincinnati, Ohio. Well, hello. My ego said, yes, I am finally recognized. You know what I mean? I've been waiting. I'm, I go to the grocery store and think, uh, when I, back then I'd go to the grocery store and think that a movie producer was going to discover me. You know, I mean, I can be on the back of a Greyhound bus, you know, going from place to place and thinking that I'm going to finally be found and be a star. That's the kind of ego I have. 
You know, so I took this job because my ego wanted it to say that I was okay, that I was something. I heard you guys get behind the podium. I heard you say you got your families back and that you got your and that you got a better job and you got a house. And I thought that's what meant if you were going to be a good AA member. I would get a house. I would get a good job. And I would get a family. And then I would be a good AA member. And the truth is none of that has anything to do with being a good AA member, but I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. Trying to put God first and live a life of service. Yeah, I could live in the projects and be a great AA member. You know, I could be divorced ten times and be a great AA member. You know, do I stay sober? Do I try to help others? And I do I do my very best to put God's will ahead of mine. You know, that's it. That for me, that's what being a good AA member is. Anyway, I was delusional. So I took that job. I could not handle that job. All right, they gave me business cards. I got a new card. I went to I went to the AA clubhouse and I passed out my card and I said it said Cynthia R. Masters, Executive Director, Muscular Dystrophy Association, and uh, I told people, you two work the steps. You can have a new card. You can have a business card. You can have a secretary. And then I bought a fuchsia suit because I had no idea how to dress. And uh, I bought a, and, I mean, I looked like a neon sign coming into a room. And, uh, and then I bought a person shoes to match. And, uh, you know, you too can have this, you know. And then I would go to work and I would crawl under my desk and hope that secretary didn't talk to me because I didn't know what to do. You know, I had to put on the Jerry Lewis Labor Day telephone, the satellite in Cincinnati. I had to fly to Las Vegas. I'd never done anything but hitchhike. You know, luckily you could still smoke on planes back then. But um, what I didn't do was I didn't come to AA and tell the truth. See, I came to AA because I needed to be this kind of two and a half years sober, this kind of two years sober back then, this kind of two years sober. I had to be this because that's what good AAs do. And I didn't tell the truth. And see, what I've learned since is that what it says and how it works is that I must have the capacity to be honest. What does that mean? What does that mean? For me, what it means today is I must be transparent. I must be authentic. I must be the same Cindy here that I am at work, that I am with my friends, that I am outside of here. I can't have a bunch of different Cindy's and expect to stay sober. And so I was having a bunch of different Cindy's. You know, I had this work Cindy that was crawled under the desk hoping nobody was going to discover how soon was it going to be, so full of shame, because if they really knew who I was and they really knew who I came from, and the truth is if they really did, they wouldn't have wanted me. Okay, that's the truth. I was not qualified for that, you know. And then I'm coming to AA and I'm telling you how great it is, and you too can be as great as me, you know. I have the kind of ego that I've got to be more to be enough. Okay, I have never felt better than another human being. I really haven't. But what I do feel is that if I have a better car or a little better house, it's good enough for you to come in it. See, it's not so I can be better than you. It's so I can be as good as you. And it elevates, and it really looks quite arrogant. It really looks ugly. Well, it is ugly, you know. And then inside, I'm like, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not good enough. And I'm chasing all that to try to be good enough so that I'm worthy. And it's this whole crazy cycle that I get in. I had that job for almost a year, and I got, I got drunk. Is that surprising? I was a liar. I lived a double life sober. I played Let's Pretend in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, didn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't able to come in and tell you my truth. I wasn't able to say I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I bounced checks. I had never had a checking account. I didn't know that you had to... It looked like free money, man, you know, and it's like they just came out with the genie machine, you know, and it's like it did, it just kept giving you money, and I mean, I, I, I got a warrant sober, you know, I, it was quite, and I, but I didn't come and tell you that. I told you 
you too work the steps. You can have a business card and a new car and house. And uh, I got drunk. And you know what happened when I got drunk? I was relieved. I woke up drunk. I don't remember drinking. But I woke up drunk. You know why I was relieved? I didn't have to go back to that job. I didn't know a good way to ever quit that job because I was so lucky to have that job. I didn't know how to ever tell somebody, I can't do this job. And I, too, as Stacy talked about this morning, I thought, well, I'll come running back to AA. See, I loved AA. You guys, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I love Alcoholics Anonymous with all of my heart. I loved Alcoholics Anonymous with all of my heart back then. So I come running back, and I've seen so many people do it. I drank. I'm new. I want to be back. I left that meeting, and I had to drink. Because, see, once I put some in me, I lose any choice about it. See, the, 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 the powerlessness, the obsession, the compulsion, the allergy has been triggered, and I lose my ability to choose whether I'm going to drink or not. I tried to come back to AA a lot, and I just kept drinking. Towards the end, it lasted about a year. Towards the end of that year, I didn't try to come back to AA so much. My drinking life became normal. No big bravado stuff like jails and on the way to prison and all that stuff. And the truth is that has nothing to do with my alcoholism. Consequences are not what make us alcoholic. I work in the prisons a lot. You know, there are a lot of people in prison that are not alcoholic. They have a lot of consequences. There are a lot of people that are alcoholic that have consequences. And there are, I've sponsored women that the very, very worst thing that they ever did was sit at their kitchen table and drink and ignore their baby crying. And that's enough. How bad, how bad does it have to be? You know what I'm saying? It's not about the consequences. It's about the hopelessness. It's about that that can't work for me anymore. It's about that it doesn't do what it needs to do. You know, it's about I can't stop when I want to stop. It has nothing to do with all that. It makes for a great story. I've got a great story at a low bottom. Great, great story, but this time none of that stuff happened. Cars got repossessed, got evicted from apartment, go live with my friends that had an apartment. Then when I got one, they would live with me. You know, that's just the way I roll when I drink. You know, and to me, that's not that's not a that's a pretty high bottom for me. And so, um, the last drunk that I had was pitiful and comprehensible and demoralizing. It was disgusting. See, my alcoholism is gross. There's nothing sexy. There's nothing brave about it. There's nothing courageous about it. It's disgusting. I sat in my front yard. I peed on myself. I puked on myself because that's the way I roll. I came out of a blackout and I didn't know where I was and I cried. Now, see, I'm a tough broad from the streets and I'm sitting in my front yard and I'm crying because I can't find my home. That's pitiful. But it's terrifying. If you're a woman blackout drinker, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're coming out of a blackout and you have no idea where you are. You have no idea what you've done. And you have no idea what anybody's done to you and you don't know what you're up for. And it is scary. The next day something changed. The first thing that changed is I didn't try to get myself sober anymore. I said, God, please help me. I don't know anybody that's ever uttered those words. And I didn't know. Because, see, I don't, I did, in my first recovery, my, the oak tree in front of Oak Street was my higher power. The problem is, is that in the middle of the night, oh, oak tree, oh, oak tree is not very comforting. You know, it's like there's no personal relationship with a power greater than me. So I didn't know what I was. I was scared of God. I knew God didn't like me. I knew God didn't like my foster brother and sister. My foster mom would sit and tell me why God was no good. You know, I knew that, I knew God definitely didn't like me. Maybe he liked them other people, but he didn't like me. You could tell from the way my whole life had rolled, you know. And, um, and so to be willing to reach out to something that I was afraid of was a huge deal. The next thing I did was that I practiced this some humility that I had never had. 
see, I was afraid I was dumb when I first got sober, but I wasn't. I was really smart. I had almost a photographic memory. I read that big book and I memorized it. And I would go to meetings and I would, I would, I would use it as a weapon to show off. Like when an old-timer would misquote the big book, I'd go, come on, Mr. Old-timer, you're wrong. Page 43, paragraph 2 does not say that. And, you know, they loved me a lot. Um, <laughs> the first thing my new sponsor told me was that I was not allowed to quote the big book anymore. She said, you may only paraphrase it as it applies in your life. I didn't have any idea what that meant. See, I knew how to say all the words. I knew what they all said. I knew about the Oxford group, the Washingtonians. I knew about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I didn't have a clue how to live it. I didn't have a clue how to put that stuff on my life. I didn't know how to do it. And so I had to shut up. I had to shut up. And I, and I was willing to, even though she didn't ever memorize the big book, and she didn't even understand the Oxford group or the Washingtonian movement. But what she did do is she knew how to live these steps and stay sober. And I was willing to take direction from her. The next thing she did was we looked at the first step. The first step, um, powerlessness and unmanageability, was a cakewalk for me. I've never had a doubt about that ever, not drinking or sober. I've always known. I've always known drinking. I didn't, it didn't, I didn't even pretend that I was going to be able to control my drinking. Um, she had me take it a step further, and this is not in the book, but it's what she had me do. And she said, I want you to look at what are the probable consequences if you drink again. And I shouted out what most of us would say. What would you say if you said probable consequences? What do we always say? Jail, mental hospital, or die. She laughed at me. She said, Cindy, you're not afraid of any of that. And the truth is, I'm not. See, I grew up in institutions. So jail, I'm like the vice president, man. Like, I do so good in there, you know? Like, I know how to be a success there. And in the mental hospital, the bar is so low. I mean, really, all you've got to do is be able to obtain more pudding than anybody else. And you are like the queen. You know what I'm saying? So who's afraid of that? I'm a hero there. All right? And death is like the next adventure. And so she made me dig deep. What am I really afraid of if I drink? Why am I motivated for the leveling of pride, for all of the things that this program requires of us, if we're going to really do it and keep doing it? Well, here's what I came up with. When I drink, I'm a big black hole. And I suck the life out of you. I lose my ability to truly deeply care about you. I tell myself I do. I tell myself I'm a very loving, caring person. I'll give you the shirt off my back. And then I will justify stealing your wallet because I gave you the shirt off my back. I do not have the ability to love you back. I do when it works for me. But the minute it doesn't work for me, I will use you. The minute it interferes with my drinking, I will, I will risk your happiness rather than my need. Your happiness is never more important than me, ever, when I drink. I'm not capable of it. See, I don't want that to be my legacy. I don't want that to be my life. That, that's, that's my big motivator now. I still don't want that. Put one in me and that is who I will be. I am selfish and I am self-centered to the core. It's not the jails. It's not the mental hospitals. It's not any of that. We get through that. We're survivors. It's what I do to other people. It's my inability to have a true, true relationship with another human being. I don't want that. It's my inability to be a good daughter. It's my inability to be a good sister. It's my inability to show up for other people. I don't do that when I drink. Yes, I know, kid. Your baseball game is so important. I'm going to be there, man. I'm going to be there. But the truth is, if something else is more important to me, whether it's drinking or something else, I won't be there. I won't. And your disappointment, I think you should just get over it. 
I don't think it should be that important, even though I made it that important. That's the way that I work. I am a step and big book person. Most of my sobriety, um, I have, I have, well, most of my sobriety, once I got through the steps in the book and got stable, I've had a big book study in my house every week. Um, I believe in being in the middle of the deal. I believe that the way we go through the book and the steps and the, the way it was gone through with me, a woman took the time to sit with me one-on-one. -on -one. See, nobody had ever been willing to be that present just with me. I, had, I, that, I wanted to do everything she wanted me to do because she took time for me, just me. And she got eyeball to eyeball with me, and I do that with my girls, you know, and I still do that with my girls. I sponsor quite a bit. I have a very busy life. I, I, it's so crazy busy, but, um, but I, I show up the way someone showed up for me. And um, so I guess my point is that with the steps, I think that that is between you and your sponsor. And um, that, but I want you to know that that's the core of my recovery. What I want to share with you is sort of where the rubber has met the road for me in sobriety, because um, because that's that's the deal. You know, it's like how do we how do we do this deal? How do we do this life thing with all the bumps and grunts and all the stuff, and not not drink again? And I've managed to do that every day in a row, every day in a row since December the seventeenth, nineteen eighty five. The first thing that changed for me was uh, at nine years sober, I moved from Cincinnati to Louisville, Kentucky, for all the wrong reasons. And uh, but uh, and I was mortified by the way they did AA in Louisville, and I wanted them to change. And uh, and I and I share with them that I came from Ohio, where AA was founded. And perhaps uh, for, for, for <laughs> you know they love me. And uh, perhaps perhaps they should adopt some of those uh, Ohio principles. Uh, and I felt lonely, and I wanted to know why nobody recognized me. I wanted to know why people didn't greet me when I came in the door, and I wanted to know why nobody knew I was Big Book Cindy like they knew in Cincinnati. And I wanted to, I wanted to know why nobody was thinking about Cindy. And then, and then, finally, I started reaching out, and I started looking for who in the meeting was coming in lonelier than me, who in the meeting looked like they were struggling more than me. And I started to reach out, and a fellowship began to grow up about me. You know what? I love Louisville AA today. I love it, and uh, and I I am a part of that. But I I never ever feel love, comfort, and understood looking for you to love, comfort, and understand me. It's just never happened. And I almost always feel love, comforted, and understood when I try to love, comfort, and understand you. It's just a weird paradox. If I'm focused on you, I feel better. And when I'm focused on me, I get full of fear. Nothing makes sense. I can't figure it out. I try to manage my life, and I'm really in a lot of trouble. The next big thing that happened was in, uh, I was uh, 11 years sober in uh, 1997, and, um, and my grandmother died. And, uh, and the big deal with my, my grandmother dying was that there weren't a lot of people. My grandmother lived in Alton, Illinois, by the way. So I, I grew up visiting her in Alton and coming to St. Louis. And, you know, I did intimacy with her into me, you see. And before I would go to bed at night, she would still wash my face. You know, I'd visit her in my 20s sober. And then I'd snuggle up with her in a bed. And I was vulnerable. And I'm not very 
talented at being vulnerable. And she was my example of spirituality. She went to church a lot. And uh, most people went to church a lot. It really scared me. And most of the time they threatened me with things like hell. And, um, and, and, and I never felt a warm, fuzzy feeling about it, you know. But here's what my grandma did. My grandma never threatened me. She never said anything bad. She said, Cindy, God loves you. She exampled, loves the answer. What's the question? Like, she just lived it. The ambulance people drive by her house, and they just say, that we called her go-go, hey, go-go, on the little loudspeaker. I mean, she just loved everybody. That's what she did. She just loved everybody. See, she loves the answer. My grandmother grew up in an era where it was popular to be prejudiced towards certain groups of people just because of the color they were born. My grandmother never, never uttered a negative word about any group of people ever. She was kind and loving to all. See, that's the AA code. I learned it from my grandma. Love and tolerance is our code. She did it. She lived it. She lived it in an era where it wasn't popular. She lived it in an era where the people around her weren't. But she did. See, what I learned from my grandma, we say in AA a lot, we say fear and faith, they can't live in the same house. I argue that completely. I am afraid to be myself in front of you because I have faith, it overrides the fear, and I get to be here. But if you think I don't have fear... I'm sorry to break the news. I'm a long time sober and I still have fear. But see, what my grandma taught me is that what it is, is that I'm going to always have fear and I'm going to always have faith. Which one do I feed? You see, when I feed fear, I become negative, cynical, I gossip. I see what's wrong with you and you and everybody else. And I become like the, 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 the chief judge of the world. And when I, when I feed faith... I just see what's right in you. I even see what's right in me. And all I do and all I want to do is love, you know. So the big deal, my grandma died. Okay, she was in her 80s. People do that. But the big deal for me was that she was scared when she died. And I got mad. And I said, God, what are you doing taking this lovely woman that's done nothing but serve you her entire life and let her be scared when it's time to come meet you? I don't want nothing to do with you. I don't want nothing to do with you. You didn't take care of my grandma when she died. I don't want nothing to do with you. And I took a walk in the dark at 11 years sober. Now, my experience, getting to know a lot of women have been sober a long time on a very intimate and personal level, is that most of us will take one or two of these in our recovery. So that's where we better have a good foundation. I thought about killing myself at 11 years sober. I only share this because if you think about it, you don't have to do it either. Okay? I, I... now, life didn't make sense because, see, I've had a spiritual experience. And everything about my life that makes any sense makes sense because there's a loving God. So when I can't believe in that loving God, nothing about life makes sense. It's that same torment and struggle that it always was before. This went on from, from my grandma died in July 97. This went on until February 1, 1998. And I, but what I did right, I did two things right. I kept looking for God. See, my job is not to feel God. I can't control how I feel. You know, I can't control if I'm connected to God. I can only control, do I do the things that somebody that gets connected to God does? Do I keep looking for God? And the other thing I did was that I was authentic and transparent. I came to meetings, and again, I still kind of think I'm cool, all right? You know, and, uh, and I come to meetings and I cry. That's not cool. I cried because I couldn't feel God. I said, I can't feel God and I'm so lonely. Now, I'm 11 years sober. Don't you know I have an 11-year sober AA image? And it is not to cry in a meeting and say, I can't feel God. But if I want to stay sober, I better tell the truth. I better not pretend. 
You know, I better not to be pretend because, and I'm a terrible example if I pretend it's always good. Because the truth is it's not. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes scary things happen. What I need to do is be real and still try to think about you more than I think about me and try to connect with God. And eventually it'll get good again. And that's the truth. That's my truth. One of the things I bought myself in early recovery was a big old Harley Davidson. had long fishtail pipes and a 79 FLH shovel head for anybody that rides. And uh, I bought it because they told me to meditate. Well, I bought it because I've always liked bikes. But they told me to meditate. And they said, you know, Cindy, you got to meditate. Well, I vibrated, man. and smoked a lot. So meditating, you know, can you see me omen, om? You know what I mean? I'm just not much of an om or om. You know what I mean? It's like, I can even be still. You know what I mean? just wasn't going to work for me. So, um... And, you know, that committee, you know, that firing squad, well, well, it's really hard to meditate because it gives them room to talk. You know what I mean? So it's like, how am I going to be still with these guys? So, uh, so that Harley Davidson was louder than they were, and it vibrated more than me. And so I'd be in the wind, and I could feel God in the wind. See, God will meet me where I am. I don't have to be able to be on a mountaintop. I don't have to be somewhere I'm not. All I have to do is want to meet God, and God will be there. So February 1, 1998, I got on that bike and I got up on I-65, which is a huge interstate in Louisville, Kentucky, where 65, 71, and 64 all meet, coming from the center of the Midwest. I'm on that highway about 10 minutes. <clears throat> I'm doing about 65 or 70 miles an hour because, see, I'm trying to find God. I'm still trying to connect. I'm doing the things I know to connect. Next thing I know, somebody's coming over my lane. Well, there is no way that I'm going to drive out of that because there's a concrete thing right over here in the thing, you know. And uh, so this person hit me. They were doing about 65. I was doing 65 or 70. That's a lot of miles to be hitting together. According to the police report, I was thrown 17 foot in the air. Uh, I popped up, and uh, there's a car driving down the center lane of the highway. And imagine being that lady. Plop, I landed on her hood, you know. And uh, I rolled off that car, and that car drove up me. So... uh, my, my, my heart was shifted to the left. My lungs were collapsed. My face got shredded by the undercarriage of that car. Um, I'm laying in the highway, my eyes out of my head, and um, um, I can see traffic coming out. I don't know I've been drove over. I'm scared. All of a sudden, I got so scared. Probably like my grandma did right before she died. You know, think about it. We're scared to change home groups. Why wouldn't we be scared of the next big adventure? You know, so, you know, I mean, really, put it in perspective, right? So I got so scared. And then I let go in the most absolute way I've ever let go in my life. I let go. I've tried to let go this way. I've prayed. I've done third steps. I've tried and tried to let go. But I let go because there was no holding on. I was dying. You know, I wasn't breathing. My lungs were collapsed. There was no air. And I let go. And you know what happened? The most beautiful thing ever happened. I got wrapped in white billowy clouds of love. That's all there was. Love, love, love. White, billowy clouds of love. And I love to share this because it's like I died and I had an awesome experience. And God is so good. And all it did was feel loving. All it did was feel like I was wrapped up in love. Lucky, lucky me to have got to have that. Lucky, lucky me to get to share that with you. I never, ever get to surprise anybody with the fact I lived. Because I'm telling the story. But, (laughs) you know... But I, 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 will, I will tell you that what happened was that I had a traumatic brain injury because my head was drove over. I had a spinal cord injury. I had about everything wrong with a human being that you could have, and nobody ever expected me to function again. I had seizures. Um, 
I lost my business. I lost everything I owned. I went on food stamps, social security, disability. Um, you guys took care of me. If you're in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous, my experience is, because I was in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have no reason ever to be afraid. I mean, I'm talking about doctor's appointments. I'm talking about bathing me. I'm talking about taking turns at my house. You guys took care of me. And uh, I thought, what is going to become of me? See, this brain, it doesn't work anymore. I can't remember somebody's name when I met them. Ten minutes later, your name's gone. What's going to become of me? How am I going to, you know, and it's like, and it's like, and I'd always been able, I, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't have any education. I went to college a little tiny bit and that wasn't for me. And it's like, so, so I start businesses, you know, and I've always made a little bit more money. It's like, so now, now it's like, how, I'm never going to make money. I'm on social security disability. I'm on food stamps. You know, my life is done. And, um, and, and so, um, you know, you know what you guys did? You brought me new girls. You brought me new girls that were feeling real sorry for themselves. See, because my looks were gone. My face looked like this. Looks, money, intelligence, gone. Where's my value? You showed me. New girl walk in my house. You guys say, tell Cindy what you told us on the way over. New girl take one look at me and say, uh-uh. <laughs> you say, come on, tell Cindy. We code her into it. Cindy, my boyfriend left. I don't know how I'm going to go on. I'd have a seizure. She would instantly feel better. <laughs> now, understand, by the time she left, I didn't know what her name was anymore. But what I knew was that when people came to my house, they felt kind of bad. And when they left my house, they felt good. And I felt like Gandhi. Sort of. <laughs> See, the most spiritual I've ever been is having a seizure. It wasn't my idea when I came here of what it would look like. See, I would have followers and sit on a mountaintop and meditate and teach you how to meditate. But the truth is God will use me where I am if I let him. What I did right was I didn't say, no, God, it needs to look like this. I didn't say, no, God, having a seizure and helping women isn't enough. I said, bring me some more. And you know what happened? I became functional. Because, see, when I think more about you than I think about me and you give me a chance to help you, see, that's the juice. The juice is if I can make a difference. The juice is never what I get. It's not the house. It's not the job. It's not the business. It's not any of those things. The juice is can I make a difference to you. And that gives me all the reason to be here. It gives me all the reason to get up. It gives me all the reason to keep trying. And I can do that if I'm living under a bridge. I can do that no matter what. So nobody would hire me. I don't know why I was having seizures and looked like this. So, but I got a commission-only job selling technology. I can't remember anything, so I'm going to sell something I don't know anything about. That's, it worked perfect. You know why? I was the only person telling them the truth. I said, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> I said, but what I promise you is these guys are really doing. They'll do what they say. I became the number one salesperson. And then... We got, uh, we got acquired, and I got to be the director of sales and marketing, and with two weeks of that, uh, I got diagnosed with cancer, which was a little disappointing. I was 34 when I had the wreck, and I was uh, 12 years sober. And at this point, I'm 36, just getting my, my legs back, 
and, uh, and I got diagnosed with cancer, and I had a great attitude, and I thought, well, it'll be groovy because, um, because I, I got through this wreck, and nobody thought I'd ever live or function again. I'm still having surgeries from the wreck, and I've got cancer now. And, it, and, and it'll be early. God's got me. And it wasn't early. It was in my lymph system, and I had, I, I had breast cancer that had, that, that had moved into my lymph nodes, and I was very young, and I had two different kinds. And so I had to go through, um, I had to go through surgeries and radiation and chemotherapy, and um, we had so much fun in AA. Soberfest, man, I was bald. We painted my head. But I will tell you, though, the cancer really kind of sucked, okay? There wasn't anything particularly fun about it. Um, it was hard. All right, but what you guys did was you loved me through it. You stayed, and you know what I did? I stayed. I stayed in AA, and I kept, I kept, I kept getting to talk to newcomers, you know, and um, and uh, and and I lived, and I and I lived, and I I, I um, I've had much better results than were anticipated for me. I'm so blessed. But when I got the diagnosis that it was like a lot harder than they thought it was going to be, and that was a big deal, and that they were, they were just basically telling me that, you know, when you get metastasis, when this happens, we're going to treat you chronically. You know, they're having these conversations with me. You know, we'll be treating this the rest of your life chronically. That is not my truth. I do see oncologists, but I don't get treated chronically. But I kicked back door off my house. I said, God, what do you want from me? I had a childhood that should have killed anybody. You know? I came off the streets where nobody makes it out alive. I come out of institutions where people just rot. You know? I, I have alcoholism and drug addiction. I, I, have a, I had a highway motorcycle accident that should have killed anybody. Now I got cancer. What do you want? And, and, and here's what I heard. Pause when agitated. Um, <laughs> what, what, what I heard back was this. You had a childhood that should have killed anybody. You came off the streets where nobody makes it out alive. You've come out of institutions where most people rot. You know, you're recovering from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. You had a high-end motorcycle accident that should have killed anybody. You, 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 you have cancer. And in that moment, it all shifted from, oh, wham, wham, poor me, to how lucky am I? How lucky am I? See, at 36 years old, I had the wisdom of an old woman. Because, see, wisdom doesn't come from getting old. And wisdom doesn't come from experience. Wisdom comes from experience learned from. See, when I drank, I had lots of experience, but I didn't learn from any of it. You know, but sober, I get to learn from it. And so, you know how many people I get to help? Do you know how many people I get to, you know how many people trust me with things they don't trust anybody with? Do you know how many people come up and cry in my chest? Do you know how lucky I am? I get those very special inches and moments that not everybody gets lucky me. And so I, I don't feel sorry for myself. That was my day. I'd like to tell you that was it. There was a six-year period of time. Then I, then I had, a, a, had to have a lower back fusion with instrumentation that cut part of my spinal canal. Because I would walk and I would fall and be unable to get up. When I, got, when I was a kid, I got kicked through some doors and it broke my back. And when I had the motorcycle accident, it exacerbated it. And my spine was literally sliding off. So I have all this hardware in my lower back. And when I was going through that, the beautiful thing was um, when I was in the hospital, it triggered every bad feeling I ever had for everything that ever happened to my back, all that trauma. I had this slideshow, click, 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 bum, 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 all those bad things. And it's like, oh, my God, if you've ever been there, you've had, you've had trauma in your background. It's like click, 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 all that stuff, and you can't get it out of your head. It's like I'm looking to my sponsor. I can't live like this. How am I going to live like this? Well, to my uh, chagrin, uh, we had to do a bunch of forgiveness work. And as a result of that forgiveness work, I made amends to the man that broke my back. And when I made amends to that man, he gave an opening for me to tear him 
a party. He'd never admitted anything he ever did. And he talked about a time when we went camping, and my cousin had just recently confronted him because he beat me publicly with an extension cord till my back and legs bled. And he gave me an opportunity. He repeated my words, and if there's anything else I've done to harm you. See, the hard amends aren't the ones where I just totally screwed you. Those are easy. Well, will you please forgive me? I've been a bad person. You know, I, what can I do to make this right? The hard amends are where you really did more to harm me, but I still have to just come to you and own mine. Because that's what sets me free. That's what sets all those shadows out of my body. That's what lets me walk as a free woman. So when my daddy said that to me, I said, well, daddy, that was a long time ago. See, I want to say lock and load, baby, I got you. But what came out of my mouth, because I did the work first, because I didn't make an amend I wasn't ready to make, because I made it with guidance, okay? What came out of my mouth was I forgave you a long time ago. How about you and I go on and have a decent relationship? And I will tell you something, I'm a very good daughter to him and my mom. And I'll tell you something else, I see what's right in them. Now, my dad is tough. My dad's tough. My dad does not have alcoholism. My dad has a Jekyll and Hyde personality. You know, he had a lot of trauma in his background. And I choose to love him. And I choose to have an escape route when I go. And my mama, I choose to nurture her. And I choose to love her. And I hated her. I hated her. I hated her because she didn't stand up for me. She didn't defend me. She threw me under the bus to save herself. And I was supposed to be her kid. And I was so mad at her. And um, today she's one of my best friends. And I adore her. And there's nothing I won't do for her. And I go to Cincinnati. And I make the trek. And I go to doctor's appointments. And I show up for them. And I do what I can do. And you know why I do that? Because I want to be a good daughter. Because I want to like myself. Because I want to respect myself. I will always have a myriad of health issues. I've had... Oh, in this six-year period, the other thing I did was I fell out of an attic. I had a Victorian house, and I landed in the doorway below and broke my neck. And my C5 split in half, and uh, they actually, I don't have a C5 vertebrae anymore. I was paralyzed from the chest down. I spent three months in the hospital, and nobody, you know, nobody, I couldn't do this. I could move my arms like this, but that was it. And I wouldn't tell these stories, and I wouldn't tell this, if there weren't a lot of AA witnesses, because it just is a bigger-than-life kind of thing. You know, and, but I have a lot of you know, sober AAs who carry me through all of these things. And I wanted to give up when that happened. But I didn't give up. I didn't give up because of you guys. Somewhere between, right after cancer, I started a business. I started because I know nobody will give me a job. I'm uneducated. I, mean, I have to start businesses. It's the only way I can be employed. And um, I started a business that I can't do one thing the business does. And I started with only having $1,700 to my name. Not to start the business, but to my name. Um, so I will tell you that when I go about the business of God's business, and I take one step and put it in front of the other, God takes care of mine. That's now the number one interactive agency in our region. And how lucky am I? I, I have, um, I've had a myriad of other health issues because all the things I've been through create other things. You know, everything on me is broken. You know, I just is. And I, I uh, up until... This last year, since 1998, I've never not had like a lengthy hospitalization one single year. Lengthy meaning a minimum of a week. So, um, and you know, sometimes it gets a little discouraging, but you guys send me newcomers and it works out and we keep the big book meeting going and you know, it's kind of cool, so lucky me, right? And um, The blessings I've had are amazing. You know, I've got, I, I don't take narcotics to deal with my chronic pain. 
I'm not saying that I never will, and I'm not about judging anybody because the big book says that's between you and your doctor and your sponsor. But my experience is that I can't be who I want to be on those things. Now, when you get your... Um, your, your, your neck cut up and open and a C5 vertebrae removed, they put you on some of that stuff. And every time that they do, I have to do a lot of work spiritually to get back to par. But I've never abused it. I've never taken it the wrong way, and I've never handled my own medication. There's always somebody that's assigned to do that. Because I hear a lot of people that relapse because they had a surgery or something, and I guess my message to you is you don't have to. You don't have to. I never have, and I've been through more surgeries and more medical stuff than anybody I know. I deal with chronic debilitating pain. Standing here with you, I can no longer feel my left leg other than the neuropathic pain that shoots through it. That is all I have while I'm talking to you. But because I'm talking to you, I'm not thinking about that pain. I'm thinking about you. And I'm thinking about what I might get to share with you. Lucky me. See, I've learned that all the principles you've taught me here work for everything in my life if I'm willing to apply them. The hardest thing that ever happened in my life, I would say, so I got to write articles in this magazine about how to deal with pain differently. And I sit on a lot of nonprofit boards. Now me, you guys heard my story. I sit, I sat on like, like a lot of boards. I've sat on executive committees of boards. I started my own nonprofit last year to help kids in, 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 our, in, in, in our hood that uh, don't have access to technology because I own a technology company. How cool is all that, right? That's not where the rubber meets the road in AA, though. And that's not the juice. That's the bonus. That's great. But the, boot, the juice and the thing that really feels the best and the thing that really works is this connection this connection when I get to help somebody. And no matter what, see, when I retire, all that will go away. You know, in that world, I will be irrelevant. But in this world, I will be more relevant because I will have more to give and I will have more experience. Only in Alcoholics Anonymous is age referenced. Only here does getting older, being sober longer, that have whole value for other people. Lucky me. Lucky me. Um, four years ago, See, ducks don't come from chickens, chickens don't come from ducks, and my siblings and I, um, none of us stayed at home past 15. My parents are very educated, none of us graduated from, from high school. Um, my sister got pregnant to get out of the house on purpose at 14. My brothers and me were just hoodlums. And, uh, and my brother that's nine months, we're Irish twins, he's nine months younger than me. You know, we, uh, when you grow up like that, you become very close. My brothers both have um, my brothers both have drug addiction. My youngest brother has drug addiction and alcoholism. Um, my brother and I, much younger than me, um, God, he was beautiful. He looked like a model. You know what I mean? Like he's like a tall Robert Redford kind of guy. He's a man's man, but gentle, kind soul. And he uh, he he with his bare hands because nobody gave us nothing, but they gave us a work ethic. They gave us a work ethic, and, and so my brother was a carpenter, and, and he built houses, and he invested, and he rented them, and, you know, he did that kind of thing, and anyway, he did pretty good because he owned a house in Costa Rica, he owned a bunch of ocean houses, he owned a house in Canada, Now my brother also was a crack addict, so how do you do that? Well, he married a wife that controlled the money. That was the first smart thing, but, but, but he was also a periodic crack addict, which I've never heard of, you know, but he would, sometimes he'd be great, and other times he'd be off running and gunning, so... Uh, we, we and him in our 40s, we got to, well, I broke my neck, um, and I was learning to walk again. We went to Costa Rica together, just me and him for a week. And uh, he's so crazy, man. He's like, we're surfing. <laughs> we're riding motorcycles in the jungle. Now here I am. I just learned how to walk. I learned I could still fly. And he learned he could stay sober a whole week. He could stay sober a whole week. And we, we had a great week together. Four, four, four years ago, it would be four years in October, 
I got a phone call. My brother uh, was probably buying drugs, and he got shot to death. And um, mm, nothing's ever made me sad. My siblings call me mama's sister. See, I grew up trying to protect them, and um, I just love them and um, change everything I look at about people. See, the book talks about 50% of us make it right away, and 25% of us keep coming, and it talks about another 25% never get it, but we get better because we participate here. And um, my brother was a seeker, and he kept seeking the ways that he could. And whatever reason, he couldn't. And I have no judgment on that. I miss him. I love him. I will always love him. My other brother spends half his time homeless, and you know, and I can't. They can't, he can't be in my house, you know, because they steal from me. Um, right after that, my brother-in-law got diagnosed with multiple myeloma at just early 50s. And uh, my sister and him were at, he's a pilot in the military. They were up at Walter Reed uh, getting stem cells and all that stuff. And then I had to have colon surgery, and I got septic and almost died three months after my brother died. My mom was going back and forth from one hospital to the other. This woman that I hated so much. I want to know why that she couldn't love me enough to stand up for me. This woman that I just wanted her to someday know what she did. Her face. She was so hurt. She felt so much guilt about everything, and I didn't want her to feel any of it. I wanted her to be free. I wanted her to not have to hurt, you know? And I've spent the last four years doing everything I can to love and support her. I lived, my brother-in-law is still going through that. He's lived longer than they expected. My sister and I, she turned 70 while he and I were in the hospital. Um, my sister and I, the next year, because we couldn't do nothing for our 70th birthday because our lives were on the line, we took my mom and my aunt to Africa for safari. And uh, my mom's face lit up again, and she began to live again. And um, I love her. I have no resentment about my life. I want her not to hurt. I hope she forgets the whole thing. I hope she never has to regurgitate that in her brain. I don't need her to make amends to me for that. I want her to be free, you know, however that needs to happen. What a gift for me. What a gift for me. I couldn't love when I got here. My cousin, my favorite cousin died. She's in a casket. They let me go from treatment to, to the funeral. Her husband grabs me because he knows I'll get it. I felt nothing. I didn't have a capacity to love. My brother dies. I still cry. I miss him. My mama, I love her. I have the capacity to truly love because of you guys. Because of you guys. I've been broke sober. I'm not afraid. I can be broke. It's okay. I got you guys. See, I got AA no matter what. It's for fun and for free. All I got to do is show up and participate. You've given me an amazing life. I've traveled the entire world. I the entire world. When does somebody like me do that? You know? When does somebody like me get a vote? On the, uh, on the Susan G. Coleman's board or the Brain Injury Alliance's board. When does somebody like me get to do that? Most importantly, when does somebody like me get the trust of somebody like you? Thank you for giving me a life worth living.